0: Welcome to the Best Interest Podcast, where we believe Benjamin Franklin's advice that an investment in knowledge pays the best interest, both in finances and in your life. Every episode teaches you personal finance and investing in simple terms. Now, here's your host, Jesse Kramer.
1: Hello, and welcome to episode 67 of the Best Interest Podcast. My name is Jesse Kramer. Later in the episode, Andrew Giancola will be joining me. Andrew is the host of the Personal Finance Podcast, which I think is a terrific name. (laughs) And we'll give Andrew a little bit better of an introduction later on. But first, let's do a quick review of the week. What Reviews wrote in and said, Smart Podcast. I just listened to my first podcast episode. I'm already learning a lot. Thank you for the efforts, Jesse. What Reviews, you are welcome. And thank you for listening. If you're listening to this right now, shoot me an email at jesse at bestinterest.blog. I'll get you hooked up with a gift from The Best Interest. Now, before Andrew Giancola joins us, I wanted to share a couple stories about humble beginnings. It's something that Andrew and I will talk about later in the episode, about the beginning of personal finance journeys, where we came from. And I just thought of a couple interesting anecdotes that I wanted to share with you guys, because there's some interesting lessons there. So the first one, one of my money beginnings, it was either 2001 or 2002, so I would have been 11 or 12 years old. And that summer, I really wanted to play the game called Age of Empires 2. Now, it's a computer game where you start out controlling a small village and you collect some resources, you grow the village larger, eventually you start raising up an army, and if you're good, you conquer your enemies. Now, to this day... Age of Empires 2 is considered one of the best computer games of all time. In fact, people still play it, despite it being 20 years old and having kind of -of out-of-date graphics. The gameplay is just that much fun, and you can go check it out on YouTube right now. Just type in Age of Empires 2, and you'll see what I'm talking about. Now, I don't think it's coincidental that the game I really wanted to play was a strategic resource management game. I think the same brain that loves those kind of games also might love economics and personal finance and investing. I do think there's a connection there. But my problem when I was 11 or 12 years old was the game cost $50, and I didn't have $50. And my parents, great as they are, they weren't going to simply gift me $50 for a computer game. I had to earn the money. And I'm sure I probably could have done chores around the house and earned an allowance, something like that. But I had a different idea. It was the birth of a little bit of an entrepreneurial spirit. My older brother was uh, playing summer baseball in in a league that summer. And my idea was to open up a small concession stand and to sell food or drinks or whatever it was to the fans. My dad, thankfully, he agreed to lend me some money to go out to Sam's Club. If you're not familiar, Sam's Club, it's kind of like a Costco or a BJ's. It's a bulk store. And uh, my dad lent me some money to buy some inventory. And I remember buying waters, bottled water, and soda cans, candy bars, and I think also those small bags of chips. Before every game, I'd I'd load up a cooler with some ice, throw the drinks in there, and then I'd sit behind home plate with my little sign. Thankfully, it worked. Over the course of the summer, my revenue ended up being over $100. So even after paying back my dad that initial loan, I had more than enough to buy Age of Empires 2. I think the fact that I had to earn the money made it even sweeter. The game was awesome. No regrets in doing so. I had hours and hours of fun playing that game in, in my you know, 12 to teenage years. But that said, when I sit here today and I think back on that entrepreneurial experiment, I made some really silly mistakes that in retrospect, I would have changed. And I think it's just fun to think about those and share them with you. So the first one, pricing. Now, I remember having this, this logic in my head when I was a stubborn 12-year-old that I was going to take the, the unit price of my inventory, I was going to double it, and then round up to like the nearest 5 or 10 cents in order to set the price of the goods that I sold. So as an example, if a bottle of water cost 21 cents to buy at Sam's Club on a, on a per-unit basis, I was going to double it to 42 cents and then round it up to 45 And that was going to be the price of the water that I sold. So my, my menu of options had all these kind of random pricings on them, you know, 45 cents for water, 65 cents for soda, 85 cents for chips, 95 cents for candy. And of course people would come and pay and they're doing math in their head. You know, can I have two waters and a soda and a candy bar? And I'm out there with a calculator. And The reason why is because in my 12 year old mind, like, am I being cheap or, you know, I, I don't want, I don't want to price gouge people. I just, I think this is a fair and equal way of doing things. And of course, by far the easier way is just round to the 50 cents, maybe round to the quarter, round to the nearest dollar, make it so that customers can very easily do math, make it so that I can very easily do math, make it so that customers have the exact change ready because they're probably working mostly in dollar bills and quarters. As a 12-year-old, you don't really think of those things. Now as an adult, you do. Uh, And speaking of, the products themselves, again, in retrospect, the big sellers were the soda and the water, by far. Most adults, they don't want a candy bar. They don't want bags of chips. Some of the kids maybe did. But again, in retrospect, it's like, who are my clients? What do they really want? Make sure that my products work for them. I think part of this lesson might have to do with the fact that I was maybe a little bit on the shy side or certainly I was uneasy about going up to groups of strangers. So what I would do is I would simply sit behind home plate behind my cooler. I had a sign, I think, that said that I was selling something. And usually over the course of the game, people would see other customers coming up, buying something for me, and they'd realize, oh, that kid back there is is selling water. But at least for the first few innings, and, and potentially even for the whole game, I'm sure there were fans who would have bought water for me, except they had no idea that there was a kid behind home plate, behind the fence, selling water from a cooler. Of course, what I should have done is simply walk down first baseline or the third baseline, especially where the opposing fans are, you know, the home fans, they might be familiar with me, but just, hey, go down both lines and just say, bottled water, cans of soda, behind home plate. Bottled water, cans of soda, behind home plate. You have to advertise and maybe even you have to make it easy for people to purchase something for you. Maybe I should have taken some things down the line and just collected money right then and there. I am sure my sales would have done so much better if I had the nerve to go to those strangers and do it. And maybe some of it's the nerve. Maybe some of it is simply the lack of awareness. And uh, I think that happens actually a lot in this world where we we think other people are thinking the same thing we are. I was sitting there at 12 years old and I thought, oh, all these people they can probably look back here and they know what I'm doing. And obviously, in retrospect, most of them had no idea I was back there selling waters and sodas. But either way, the experiment ended up working out. I got what I wanted out of it. And now I get to share some of those lessons with you guys. The next quick story was about my first real job. I'll say I was 16 and I worked at Fairhaven Beach State Park, beautiful state park near where I grew up. And for that first summer, I was hired as a cleaner. I cleaned toilets, I cleaned sinks and urinals. When a camper was done using their cabin, I would sweep out the cabin and, and clean the bed itself, clean the fridge. At times, it was not the nicest, cleanest job of the world. I think you can probably understand why. Uh, at that time, minimum wage was $7.25 an hour. I remember I was earning closer to $7.60 an hour we got paid a premium because we were doing such a, a nasty job that other people didn't want to do but still you're only making 760 an hour and i remember doing the math and thinking to myself okay 760 pennies per hour and there's 3600 seconds in an hour so i'm earning roughly a penny every 5 seconds and i also remember sitting there probably with my head in a toilet you know with, with a johnny brush cleaning a toilet And thinking to myself, okay, another penny in the bank. One, two, three, four. Okay, another penny in the bank. I mean, literally counting down the days during some of the slow periods, just wishing I was doing something else, obviously, but trying to remind myself that, yes, I'm getting paid for this. I'm earning money. But the lesson I take away from that is that if you're thinking something along those lines, you got to find something else to do. But I stuck with it for that first summer. I earned my checks, and I still remember that first, you know, roughly $450 check, which was two weeks of pay with taxes removed, $450. felt amazing to earn that much money at one time. Going into my second summer at the park, they rehired me as a cleaner, but I did not want to do it. In fact, I was dreading the idea of spending another summer cleaning toilets. I knew I couldn't quit, per se. I needed a job. That was kind of this, a mandate in my house. You got to go. You got to work. You got to earn some money. Learn what it means to have a job. So I knew I, I had to do something. I just didn't want to clean toilets. Thankfully, in retrospect, very thankfully, in the first week there, I was, I was out somewhere, you know, at a bathroom complex, going through all the urinals. And one of the three main managers at the park, he stopped by just to, to say hi and welcome me back for the summer. And I remember this conversation crystal clear. I remember saying, Tom, grateful to be a cleaner. Thanks for hiring me back. But if an opportunity opens up on your maintenance team, I'd love to be considered for it. You know, I don't want to clean toilets for life. And he, he made a joke. He totally understood where I was coming from. I was so thankful he did. And he said, you know, there's nothing right now, Jesse, but you never know. That might change by the end of the week. Who knows? And sure enough, someone quit that week. And the guy who quit, he quit a a relatively unique role at the park. Most of Tom's maintenance team, they worked the day shift Monday through Friday. So they worked eight to four Monday through Friday. And they did things like they mowed lawns, they replaced window screens, they split wood. You know, they did manual labor from 8 a.m. to 4 p.m. during the week. My role, the one that I ended up getting hired for, was more of like the night shift. It started at 10 a.m., but it went all the way to 8 p.m., And I worked Thursday through Sunday. I was also the weekend shift. And it was this hybrid of some of the physical labor that the maintenance team did, but also some in the field customer service. For example, when a camper called to complain that the previous tenants at their campsite left a mess, I would get called from the main office to drive down to that campsite, you know, apologize, try to patch things over, calm them down, clean up the mess and make it all better. So Once the rest of the maintenance team left at 4 p.m., I was one of the only people left. And on weekends, I was one of the only people around. And I had the autonomy to work on whatever happened to need to be worked on right then. And I also had the autonomy to chat with park goers or just people in the park who needed to speak with someone. And I loved that job so much more than being a cleaner. It was a perfect job for me. I spent some time on my feet. I was outside a lot. Sometimes I was driving the trucks around the park, visiting different campsites. I did some manual labor. That was fun. And I was always talking to people, solving their problems, having a chat. It was a little bit of everything. I know that I was never counting the pennies as they dribbled into my imaginary piggy bank. If I hadn't gone out of my way to ask Tom for other opportunities other than cleaning, I probably would have cleaned toilets until I quit in frustration. And that right there is another really powerful lesson. No matter what you're doing out there, no matter what your job is, I think you have the power to at least start planting the seeds. If you want to make changes, you can start planting the seeds. For me, my most recent career change came from planting the seeds that I started with the best interest. I was working as an engineer. I loved talking about and writing about personal finance and investing. I started the best interest blog. I then started the best interest podcast. This acted as my resume to a large extent. And when push came to shove. And eventually I said, you know what? I think I might want to change careers and I want to change careers in a direction further into personal finance and investing. The best interest was my resume that said, I'm really serious about this. And I think you should take me seriously. And I think I'd do a good job working for you. Here I am working at a a fiduciary wealth management firm, no regrets at all, only looking forward, not looking back. And I can tie some of those connections Back to these interesting stories from early in my financial life. Here's a quick ad, and then we'll get back to the show. Every week, I send a quick free email to thousands of readers that shares three simple things. One, my new articles and podcasts. Two, the best financial content of the week from all over the internet. And three, a financial chart that explains some important concept in the news that week. It's a great primer to boost your financial know-how.
0: Uh, But Jesse, I don't want another email.
1: Well, this might not be for you, but I do hear you, which is why I make it very short, sweet, and full of only the essentials. While 18% of people who sign up eventually unsubscribe, and 13% of people who are signed up haven't opened it in the past three months, a whopping 66% of subscribers read my email at least once a month. They're enjoying it, and maybe you will too. You can subscribe for free on the homepage at bestinterest.blog. Again, that's a free, no-strings-attached subscription at bestinterest.blog. So with that, let's bring on Andrew Giancola. Andrew is the host of the Personal Finance Podcast, which is a pretty awesome name for a personal finance podcast, right? Over the last three and a half years, Andrew has published hundreds of podcast episodes covering personal finance, investing, business strategies, income sources, the stock market, and real estate investing. 8 million downloads later, Andrew is now here joining us on the Best Interest Podcast. All right, Andrew, thanks for coming on the Best Interest Podcast. How are you doing? Thank you, Jesse, so much for having me. I am so excited to be here. Awesome, man. Well, let's, let's jump right in. I know a little bit about your backstory, and I want to share your backstory. I think it's a really important for listeners to know your backstory. So tell us a story, if you would, from your days of living paycheck to paycheck. Absolutely. So I graduated
2: from college. And when I graduated from college, I had a job where I only made $30,000 per year. And I very quickly realized that I had a problem. I had an income problem. And so I started to live paycheck to paycheck. Now, this is not a person who did not understand personal finance. For me, I used to love personal finance. I would read different personal finance books. I was super mm-hmm. interested in it, even as a teenager. So I understood what I needed to do, but I did not implement what I needed to do. And there was a moment in time where I went to a gas pump and I went to go fill up my gas tank. And I realized at that moment in time, I did not have enough money to fill up my entire gas tank. Now, to be fair, this is a Chevy Suburban. It was a big car, but at the, <laughs> at the same principle, I didn't have the $100 I needed to fill up this gas tank. And so at that point in time, I was so frustrated and I was so mad at myself that this has happened that I decided to make a complete change. So probably for the first six months of being in the real world, the corporate world, I was living that paycheck to paycheck. And I made a bunch of different drastic changes, which is what I teach a lot of people now, in order to get out of that paycheck to paycheck cycle. And some of the things that I did was first creating a cash buffer, just so I had some cash on hand to be able to take care of any small emergencies that came up. I made sure that I you know, got rid of any debt that I had. So I had a couple thousand dollars on credit card. I got rid of that as fast as I possibly could eliminated that debt. I tried to then actually fully fund an emergency fund, so I had 3 to 6 mm-hmm. months in my emergency fund and ended up having 6 months. And then from there started to invest my dollars. But these were kind of the steps that I take and I think wealth building is a step-by-step process and there are tactical things that you can absolutely do in order to get yourself out of that paycheck to paycheck cycle. But the other side of the coin is the income side. And so I realized very yeah. early that I had a major income problem. So I focused on different ways to increase my income, which we can talk about more here. But I think those two sides of the equation, figuring out what are the steps I need to take in order to kind of reduce my expenses and increase my income are the two drastic changes when it comes to money. I love
1: that. And it's funny, as you're telling that story, I thought of the hero's journey. The hero's journey, for those not familiar, I mean, I might butcher the definition a little bit, but it's kind of this classic story. The story that's old as humanity, you know, Luke Skywalker and Star Wars, Harry Potter, all these famous stories have the hero's journey. And part of the hero's journey is, is basically hitting rock bottom and picking yourself up from there. So I have to imagine that experience at that gas pump might have been pretty close to the rock bottom in your financial hero's journey. That is
2: absolutely right. And one of the main things that I did very early on is I realized that I needed to shift my money psychology. And this was the biggest factor for me in making sure that I could actually figure out what to do with my money. So I think money is honestly 90% psychology, and I think it's 10% of like the know-how and what you know. And I read a book called The Millionaire Next Door, which probably a lot of your Mm -hmm. listeners have already read. And what that is, is it kind of teaches you, hey, this is actually how millionaires act day to day, where I used to think, you know, they were buying the fancy houses or the Lamborghinis. But instead, what was really happening was I needed to actually save and accumulate my wealth over time and build that wealth for the long term. So I made those small changes, but the psychology shift was probably the biggest thing for me was learning how to master my money psychology. I
1: love that. I recently, Andrew, I, I changed some of the wording on my homepage inspired by FinCon where we met. And, uh, I wanted to kind of hone in on who I am providing this content for, who my ideal listeners and readers are. And, and one thing I focused on is it's, you know, hard ideas with simple explanations. People who know the basics, they want to learn more and they want to become the millionaire next door. That exact verbiage, because I think it is, it is a, It's not necessarily rocket science, but it's about getting these simple habits right, changing your mindset to make sure that you're thinking about money the right way, not in the Lamborghini Ferrari way, but in the way that people can slowly and surely become millionaires over time. One thing you mentioned, I think maybe in your previous answer, was that you're now uh, working, you're you're coaching some people, you do some one-on-one assistance to help people figure out the path that you successfully have gone down. What kind of questions are you asking your clients or what kind of information is important for you to gather so that you understand where they are and where they should be going?
2: This is a great question. And I think it is one for us that we are very, very systematic on how we do this because what we wanna do is we wanna figure out what is the biggest problem that each individual is struggling with. And we do this on a very limited basis for a number of reasons. One of which is we want it to be something that we can really put all of our attention into this. But at the same time, we want to make sure that we can solve these problems in the right way. So we are really, really focusing on what people's problems are. And it turns out a lot of people have very similar problems when it comes to money. They may have very different specifics, but they have similar problems when it comes to what they want to figure out, especially when they are starting their hero's journey, for example. So for a lot of them, what they're looking for is, hey how much money do I need to actually have in order to be able to retire? That is one big key. And it's obviously an easy calculation for you and I, Jesse, to kind of come up with. But we can then figure out, hey, what is a step-by-step plan for them that kind of allows them to get to that point? Another big one is maybe they're just at the beginning of their journey and they're trying to figure out, hey, how do I get out of debt? What are some of the steps I need to take in order to conquer this debt as fast as possible? And so the questions that we ask are, hey, what is your dream life? What is the life that you want to live? And how can we use money as a tool in order to achieve that dream life? How can you do more of the things that you love and cut back on the things that you don't really love spending, but you spend money on? Anyway, so there's a lot of really cool things that you can do there, but we try to start with the end in mind and figure out what is their dream life and how can we achieve
1: that together? That's awesome. Starting with goals in mind. I think that goals-based investing framework is a great place to start. Even before gathering some of the nitty-gritty info, whether it's assets and debts, income, expenses, those kind of things, who am I working with? Who is this person, this unique individual sitting across from me, and how can I help them on their unique journey? And speaking of unique journeys, I know from talking to you offline, Andrew, you're quite the entrepreneur, and Christmas tree stands have some sort of place in that entrepreneurial story, something close to your heart, maybe close to your wallet as well. So tell us more about Christmas tree
2: stands. So one of the things that I did when I was living paycheck to paycheck is I started to try to figure out, hey, what are some side hustles that I could start doing? So I started to sell things on Amazon, for example. I would sell things on eBay. I would try to do different little side hustles. And one of the things that I landed on was we started a Christmas tree stand. And yes, I'm talking about the side of the road Christmas tree stands that you drive by during Christmas time. And so we started this thing out because my wife has um, a relative, a distant relative who has two Christmas tree stands, and they make about $100,000 per year between those two Christmas tree stands. And they work one month out of the year in order to be able to make their living and their income. They live in a low cost of living area. And so they kind of showed us, hey, here's the step by step, exactly what we did. And here's how you can do it, too. So we went out there, we spent about $7,000 ordering Christmas trees, had them shipped in, put out the tent, all that different things, and then tried to find ways to make revenue. And so we had one of these side of the road Christmas tree stands. And I think in the end of it, the first year we made about $10,000. But what we quickly realized was your location is so incredibly important when it comes to these Mm -hmm. year over year. we, We kind of did this for a couple of years and then ended up not doing it anymore. But it was something that was definitely profitable. But once we had kids and things like that, it became more difficult to do. But it was definitely a really, really fun experience. And then obviously we do a lot of other things now. But it was probably my first entrepreneurship physical location that we had that we were able to kind of
1: figure out how that kind of stuff works. Try new things, see what works, see what doesn't work, and if things aren't working, don't be afraid to abandon them. Try something new. One thing you pointed out there Andrew was that when you started having kids, it sounded like the the cost of running this Christmas tree stand, the cost was higher than the benefit. And that brings me to the phrase opportunity costs, which is a phrase I've heard you say a lot before. So when I say opportunity costs, I mean what kind of stories or thoughts come to your mind? So I think evaluating opportunity costs is one of the most
2: important things when it comes to learning how to build wealth. And I think it is one of the most powerful things that you can really truly think about when you start to manage your money. So there's a bunch of different things when it comes to opportunity costs. First of all, it's time. So how much time and how much return on hassle, as my friend Nick Majuli says, does something take in order for you to take advantage of it? So for example, the Christmas tree stands was not worth the return on hassle based on having young kids and having a bunch of different things happen in life and other opportunities coming up. So that's the first question is how much time is this going to take me? The second question is how much money is this going to cost me now, but also in the future? And you've got to evaluate what those numbers are. So there are a bunch of million dollar money decisions that I think a lot of people need to think about, some of which are things like your mortgage interest, for example. So you can think about your mortgage interest, in 2020 when mortgage rates were low. Now we're talking where mortgage rates are like around 8% at the time we we're recording this. But when your mortgage rate was say 2.5%, 3%, for example, you could get a house, say you bought a $400,000, $500,000 house. That same exact house is going to cost you over $1,000 more per month with that 7 8% interest rate. So you think about this and you have $1,000 more per month that you are paying over the course of 30 years. If you invested those dollars at an 8%, 9 10% rate of return, that is well over a million dollars just on that small money decision that you're making there. You can think of things like investment fees. You can think of things like interest on car loans or buying cars, appreciating assets, things like that. There's so many different ways that you can think of these opportunity costs. Negotiating your salary is another massive one. So we talk about negotiating our salary all the time. And I think this is the number one place if you need to increase your income, look at negotiating your salary first at the place that you spend most of your time. And it has been shown during studies that even people who just get a 3% increase every single year above other people who do not negotiate will make over a million dollars over the course of their career. So there's so many of these small money decisions that we really don't think about a lot that are actually million-dollar money decisions that we truly, truly need to keep
1: in the back of our mind and understand how they work. I love that. When you talk about opportunity costs there, you use some examples that, that I've thought of before. You know that phrase, fear of missing out, FOMO? FOMO, yes. I I think opportunity costs are, you can essentially think of them as the cost of missing out. Or if you choose one path, you're missing out on all these other potential paths. And all those other paths have their benefits. They might have other costs as well. So it's whatever choice you make in life, and and really opportunity cost is kind of this economic term that, because economists realize you have all these different choices in life. Every single choice has costs and benefits associated with it. And when you have one choice or when you choose one particular path, you are missing out on all these other paths and you ought to be evaluating them in some way. Sometimes you can measure that in dollars and cents. Sometimes it's harder to measure. I mean, the opportunity cost of running that Christmas tree stand and potentially, you know, I'm I'm spitballing here. Maybe it means your wife would have had to take more responsibility with the family. Maybe you would have missed out on some valuable holiday occasions. Maybe you can't measure those in dollars and cents, but they're still important to you. So when it comes to those kind of opportunity costs, do you have any, any tactics that you use, Andrew, to kind of think about those less monetary opportunity costs?
2: Absolutely. So one of the most important things for me is I think about people who get to the end of their life and what are the things that they regret most? And the number one thing that they regret most always is they don't spend enough time with their family or, you know, they work too much, those types of things. And I think that is one of those opportunity costs that really, I do not want to have to you know, try to make more money in order to miss out on those types of things. So I try to focus my life and try to gear everything towards making sure I can spend enough time with my family and be with them all the time. And so that is one of those opportunity costs for sure that a lot of people don't really weigh out because it's not a monetary thing, but it is one thing that you will absolutely regret at the end of your life if you do not weigh these things out. Maybe you want to travel the world more. Maybe you don't have a family yet. You want to travel the world. That's that's what your goal is. And you are going to regret that if you don't start traveling the world more now. So how can you kind of gear your life, your business, everything around these types of things so that you are able to go out there and travel the world more? So there are just so many different ways that you can kind of think about this, but really, really weighing out the cost. Like Paula Pant says, you can afford anything, but you can't afford everything. So kind of weighing out those costs and kind of going through
1: that process is really, really important, I think, when you go through your everyday life. Awesome. Lifestyle sign. I, yep. I love talking about it, and that's a, an incredible opportunity cost topic. Here's a quick ad, and then we'll get back to the show. One of the more common questions I hear is Jesse, what do you like and use? Books, blogs, podcasts, even banks and brokerage firms. What are your recommendations? So, to answer that question, I put together a web page. You can check it out at slash recommendations. Again, that's bestinterest.blog slash recommendations to check out how I'm improving my financial life. Let's switch gears back a little bit to some money topics. At least we can measure them in money. And one thing I've heard you say before, we have the first $100,000, but that's a different story than the second, the third, the fourth $100,000. How do you think about that specifically, Andrew? And, And maybe even does your own money story, have some lessons when it comes to the first 100,000 versus all the subsequent $100,000?
2: It absolutely does. Because when I was starting to invest my money, I realized very quickly and early on that, hey, I'm investing these dollars and this money doesn't seem like it's growing very quickly. And so I started to run the numbers and I started to do the math. And what eventually happened was when you look at the math, your first 100K is one of the hardest milestones you will ever hit when it comes to your personal finances. And the reason for this is because over time, what's happening is your 100K is actually propelled by your savings rate instead of your return on investment. So the key here is, and I've got examples that we could talk about too, but the key here is understanding that your savings rate is what is going to propel you to your first 100K. Then after you get to your first 100K, then compound interest is going to start to come into play more. You're going to see your accounts grow a little more, and it's going to flip-flop from what it is early on. So say, for example, that you start to try to save $5,000 per year at an 8% interest rate. So if you do something like that, where you're saving $5,000 per year, that means about 75% of your first 100K is going to be your savings rate, and about 25% is actually going to be your return on investment. So you can look at this over time, and it's going to be even very similar even if you save $15,000 per year. The difference between those two things is massive, but it's not that much when it comes to your first 100K. So your first 100K mm-hmm. is really, really difficult to get to. But then once you hit that number, it's not some magical number, but it's a it's a great milestone to hit where you can start to see some rate of return when it comes to your investment. So if you are a new investor, if you've just started investing, I have this question all the time, and you don't see your accounts moving very much, you don't see you know a huge return on investment, what's happening here is your savings rate needs to propel that. So it's so important to start to save early and often And then over time, you're going to see a massive difference as time goes on.
1: Yeah. I mean, even you could just use some rough numbers. You used 5% earlier. So let's continue using that. I mean, by the time we retire, most of us listening to this, hopefully we have some goal. Maybe it's it's a million dollars. Let's just use a nice round number there. A 5% return on a million dollars, $50,000 in one year, that gets you halfway to your next 100K. Whereas when you're starting out, putting in that $500 a month or something like that, It's going to take you a long time to get to that first 100K. So it is interesting. I see it with some of my clients, Andrew. Compound interest is magical. By the time you get to that millionaire status, you're that millionaire next door like we were talking about before, five, eight, 10% returns in a single year, that might get you more than your next 100K. And it it feels amazing compared to how hard it was, how much of the struggle was when you were a young adult like you and I. And really, you were the one who had to save and push for that first 100K.
2: Exactly. I almost think of it as as someone who is out there and you're really just doing all the work. You can think of an entrepreneur at the very beginning. They are doing all the work trying to build out this business. And then all of a sudden, they think about, hey, I'm going to hire employees. You can think of your dollars as little employees that are going to start to work for you over time. And over time, it's just going to grow more and more and more. But that first 100K is so incredibly hard to hit. And I think even Charlie Munger has a bunch of different quotes on how difficult your first 100K is. And so, I think it's a really, really interesting way for new investors to really make sure that you understand how this works. Stay patient. It's going to take you seven, eight years to get to your first 100K. Uh, and that's okay. That is something that is okay. It is going to accelerate over time. You just have to be
1: patient. I love that because I think there are people listening right now who haven't hit their first 100K yet. That's totally fine. And we're here to tell you it's the hardest one. It, it truly is. So, Andrew, going back a few months, I mean, I know you're a big real estate guy. My wife and I, we recently moved. You mentioned 8% mortgages earlier. We secured a 6.5% mortgage, which listen, it doesn't float my boat. I don't love it, but it is better than 8%. But that said, I know you have some some cool thoughts on the buy versus rent debate. So can we dive into that? Absolutely. So I think for a lot of
2: people, they need to understand how to run the numbers when they buy their own personal residence. So we talk about this a lot when we buy rental properties, things like that. You need to run the numbers and make sure that you're running the numbers so you can see if your property is cash flowing. But when it comes to buying your own personal investment, I also think you need to run TCO or total cost of ownership because Mm. understanding this number is incredibly one of the most powerful things that you can do because buying a house is a million dollar money decision when it comes to opportunity cost. So you got to make sure that you understand, hey, in my specific location, is it better for me to rent? And or is it better for me to buy? And what most people don't factor in is some of the ongoing maintenance costs and the additional costs that are associated with homeownership. Now, I've been a homeowner for over 10 years. I absolutely love owning a home. Jesse, you said you're a homeowner now as well. And there are a number of really, really good reasons to buy a house, especially when it comes to lifestyle design. If you have kids, having being in that school district, There's a bunch of other great reasons to own a house, but it's not always the best financial choice. And the reason for that uh, is if you look at the historic rate of return on personal residence, if you factor in total cost of ownership, it is like three to 4% over time. Well, you can make a lot more money in the market if you do that. So running total cost of ownership is really important. I'm talking about things like insurance or ongoing maintenance, landscaping, those types of things, and making sure you run all those numbers. And we have a spreadsheet that we always uh, talk about where It runs total cost of ownership for you. And then you could put in your local uh, rental rates as well. And you could say, hey, is it cheaper for me over time to buy versus rent? And what I want a lot of people to understand is it is okay to rent if homes are not affordable in your area. Some high cost of living areas have lower rent rates, but you got to run the numbers just to understand. Sometimes it makes more sense to buy the house. So it just kind of really... Depends on what your specific location is and and what type of factor is going to play. So that's why I always talk about running
1: numbers when it comes to buying a house because I think it's incredible. One of the most important things that you can do. I agree completely. I think let the math guide you. That's something I definitely believe in, and I think we talk about a lot on the best interest. And another important thing to point out there that you said, Andrew, is there might be scenarios where listeners out there they do run the numbers, home ownership ends up making sense for them. But despite that, it still doesn't mean that homeownership is a great investment. Homeownership is expensive. And personally, I advise people don't think of your home as an investment. Your home is a roof over your family's head. It's it's a family decision. If it happens to be a good investment, when you look back 30 years from now, awesome. That's gravy on top. That's fantastic. Your investments should be something other than your primary home. Again, this is my opinion. This isn't necessarily an objective fact. The one objective part of it, though, is what you alluded to, which is historical rates of return on residential real estate. They're not that great, especially when you account for inflation, just the, the total cost of home ownership. It's not really a good investment. So you shouldn't go into home ownership expecting it to be one.
2: Exactly. And you hit the nail on the head. It is a family decision. It is a decision that you really need to make for your family, but it should not be the majority of your net worth. And the worst thing that you can see for a lot of people, especially now in the baby boomer generation, I'm sure, Jesse, I'm sure you see a lot of clients this way, is that a lot of them have the majority of their net worth in their home. And it is really, really hard to become wealthy or build wealth if the majority of your net worth is only in your home and it's not in other assets and income producing assets like stocks, bonds, index funds, those types of things. So That is one of the keys really to to making sure that you are building wealth in the correct way is not having all of your net worth in your home and because it's not that great of an investment, like you said. It is more so a family decision and there's a bunch of other reasons why you should own a home, but as a financial investment, it should not be the number one priority.
1: Totally agree. Andrew, if people want to check you out and hear more of your cool takes, your your great thoughts, how can people get a hold of you? How can people find the Personal Finance Podcast?
2: So you can find the Personal Finance Podcast on any podcast player, Uh, whatever one you're listening to right now, you can find it there. And then we are also at mastermoney.co is our newsletter. So we put out a newsletter every single Thursday. Uh, So if you want to check that out, it's mastermoney.co
1: slash newsletter. Awesome. We'll throw it all in the show notes. Andrew Giancola of the Personal Finance Podcast. Thanks for stopping by the Best Interest Podcast.
0: Thank you so much for having me. This is amazing. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of the Best Interest Podcast. If you have a question for Jesse to answer on a future episode, send him an email at jesse at bestinterest.blog. Again, that's jesse at bestinterest.blog. Did you enjoy the show? Subscribe, rate, and review the podcast wherever you listen. This helps others find the show and invest in knowledge themselves. And we really appreciate it. We'll catch you on the next episode of the Best Interest Podcast. The Best Interest Podcast is a personal podcast meant for education and entertainment. It should not be taken as financial advice and is not prescriptive of your financial situation.